we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In its entire 72-year history, North Korea has fought one war, the Fatherland Liberation War. And every July 27th, the country comes to a halt to celebrate its anniversary. For North Koreans, July 27th is like Christmas and New Year's Eve rolled into one. Traditionally, a military parade with tanks, nuclear warheads, and thousands of soldiers marching in formation rolls through the capital city of Pyongyang. It honors their eternal leader, Kim Il-sung, whose courage and leadership on the battlefield guided the troops to victory. North Korea's state media refers to the Fatherland Liberation War as the fiercest revolutionary war in the world history of wars. Everywhere else, it's remembered as the Korean War, a disaster that left millions of civilians dead and ended in a stalemate. Every July 27th, North Korean pride and propaganda reaches the pinnacle of its fervor, commemorating a war that their country didn't win. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is the second episode exploring the Kim Dynasty of North Korea. Today we'll dive into Kim Il-sung's rise from a puppet leader installed by the Soviet Union to being revered as a deity, despite killing hundreds of thousands of his own people. We'll also explore how he became the only communist dictator to establish a family legacy, in this case, abdicating to his son, Kim Jong-il. Kim Il-sung's rise from anti-Japanese freedom fighter to the leader of North Korea seems almost scripted. It's the story of practically every modern dictator. As a member of the Soviet army during World War II, Kim had taken more than a page from Joseph Stalin's playbook. And when Kim returned to Korea in 1945, he consolidated power and support the same way Stalin did in the Soviet Union by nationalizing resources and industry, organizing an enormous national army, and propagating his own cult of personality. By mid-1949, Kim Il-sung had fortified North Korea into a self-sufficient country with strong industrial and agricultural sectors. Through wide-ranging reforms of the health and education systems, he'd also grown immensely popular. But he wouldn't be satisfied until the entire country, including South Korea, was united under his rule. So with the support of his counterparts in the Soviet Union and China, Kim and his massive army invaded South Korea on June 25, 1950. They stormed through the peninsula, facing little resistance from the haphazard South Korean army. At first, it appeared that Kim's plan might come to fruition. But after their collective victory in World War II, the Soviets had snatched up territory all over Europe, and the U.S. government was not eager to see communism spread any further. Not a moment too late, they decided to intervene. The U.S. mobilized a small division of around 500 troops that had remained in Japan after World War II. On July 5, 1950, they attacked the North Korean forces in Osan, just outside of Seoul. Unfortunately, this small division was no match for the North Korean army. The Americans suffered 180 casualties. Nearly half their force was killed or severely injured. Though the United States was able to activate additional troops, no amount of manpower could stem the march of Kim Il-sung's army. And by September, U.S. and South Korean forces were cornered in the small coastal city of Pusan. Kim Il-sung believed he was on the verge of a decisive victory and that within days, all of the Korean peninsula would be his. But a steady flow of incoming U.S. troops derailed those plans. In the ensuing Battle of Pusan perimeter, the U.S. Air Force was able to bomb strategic North Korean locations, mainly transportation hubs, halting Kim's ability to advance supplies to the front lines. And as the U.S. began winning its share of small-scale battles, more and more American troops arrived until U.S. forces outnumbered the North Koreans. Finally, by mid-September, U.S. forces had turned the tide of the war and forced North Korea to retreat. As their retreat began in earnest, it became clear that North Korea had only prepared for a quick victory 
not a sustained battle. For one thing, they were virtually defenseless against U.S. air attacks, which wiped out their heavy artillery, and they didn't bother to maintain outposts behind them in case of a retreat. So when they were pushed back north, Kim's troops had nowhere to rest or resupply. This lack of cached resources left the North Korean ranks in chaos and with heavy casualties. Nearly half of Kim's forces were killed or taken as prisoners of war. The few units that remained were able to retreat safely, but posed absolutely no threat to the rapidly advancing U.S. forces. Within weeks, the North Korean army had retreated far past the 38th parallel, all the way to a small area in the northernmost border of the country. In order to survive, let alone continue the fight, they would need a miracle. Luckily, China's leader, Mao Zedong, was ready to throw Kim Il-sung a lifeline. On October 18, 1950, Mao sent 250,000 of his own troops into North Korea. Meanwhile, Joseph Stalin sent Soviet pilots to provide air cover for Mao's troops as they crossed the border into North Korea. The Battle of Anjong, the first between U.S. and Chinese forces, occurred on October 25, 1950. Using the hilly, brush-covered terrain to their advantage, Chinese forces ambushed U.S. and South Korean troops from all sides and easily defeated an entire battalion of South Korean soldiers. The Battle of Anjang not only saved Kim Il-sung from certain defeat, but it once again shifted the momentum in favor of North Korea. The operation was so significant that to this day, October 25th is commemorated as War to Resist America and Aid Korea Memorial Day throughout China. Now it was clear that the U.S. would have to formulate a new strategy. And while the one they chose to pursue wasn't exactly new, it was definitely effective. In November 1950, they began a large-scale scorched earth bombing campaign across North Korea. But unlike the previous campaign, which targeted North Korean military outposts and transportation hubs, this one was designed to inflict as much damage across the region as possible. It was a strategy almost identical to the one used by U.S. pilots in Japan during World War II. They made no distinction between military and civilian targets, often going after schools and hospitals. The goal was to bomb a population into submission. Throughout the three-year carpet bombing campaign, the U.S. dropped more bombs on North Korea than they did in Japan and the Pacific during World War II. Almost every major North Korean city was completely destroyed. U.S. forces even considered detonating atomic bombs in North Korea. But when it became clear that their scorched earth campaign was producing the desired results already, they decided nukes weren't necessary. During this time, smaller-scale battles continued being fought on land in and around the 38th parallel, the dividing line between the two Korean territories. And while both sides could claim victory in certain battles, none were decisive enough to shift the overall outcome of the war. By 1951, both sides were growing increasingly frustrated with the lack of outcome. U.S. President Truman relieved General MacArthur of his command after the two disagreed on strategy. 
Truman believed MacArthur's actions could lead to a larger conflict between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Meanwhile, Mao had lost all faith in Kim Il-sung as a military strategist and resented that China was forced to do the bulk of the fighting. He even suspected Kim of trying to negotiate a truce behind the scenes. From 1951 to 1953, both sides suffered heavy casualties without making any significant gains or advances. It's estimated that 40,000 American troops were killed, while Chinese and North Korean forces were estimated to have suffered over one million casualties. Despite these heavy tolls, it was the civilian population that suffered most. It's estimated that 20% of North Koreans, roughly two million people, were killed, while about a million South Koreans lost their lives. As the destruction and casualties mounted, it became clear to both sides that neither would emerge victorious. So on July 27th, the Korean Armistice Agreement was signed. It was almost identical to the agreement signed between the U.S. and Soviet Union after World War II. The country was still divided along the 38th parallel, only now there was a section called the DMZ, or Korean Demilitarized Zone, to serve as a buffer between the two countries. After the war, Kim was in the weakest position he'd ever faced as leader. Mao and Stalin had begun to lose faith in him, and he worried that his own citizens would follow suit. He knew he needed to take drastic measures to maintain control of the country. Once again, he used the methods of his icon, Joseph Stalin, to turn a costly, humiliating defeat into an iron grip on the people of North Korea. When we return, we'll explore how Kim developed his cult of personality. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Out in front to Williams, slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! Hammers it home! Oh my goodness! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Now, back to the story. The Korean War ended in a ceasefire agreement between North and South Korea, which remained divided along the 38th parallel. Kim Il-sung's goal of controlling the entire Korean peninsula was dead. Millions of Korean citizens were also dead, and North Korea, the instigator of the conflict, was virtually destroyed. For the first time, Kim began to face criticism at home and a challenge to his authority. He knew that staying in power would require drastic measures. Taking a cue from Joseph Stalin, Kim shifted the blame for the war to several high-level government officials. The only thing these men were guilty of was criticizing Kim. 
but he accused them of collaborating with American and South Korean forces and either had them exiled or executed. Kim used this strategy to purge the government of 2,500 of his enemies, anyone and everyone he considered a threat to his power. But even among his supposedly loyal communist coalition, Kim Il-sung began to be perceived as an outlier and a loose cannon. Kim had maintained a cordial relationship with his idol, Joseph Stalin. But after Stalin's death in 1953, things began to fray. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev, implemented what was later called de-Stalinization, undoing most of the changes Stalin had made to the Soviet government. Khrushchev denounced Stalin's personality cult, the very cult that Kim was emulating in North Korea. Kim's relationship with Mao Zedong was also strained to a breaking point. Kim had begun to alienate Mao during the war when his incompetence as a leader put strain on Mao and his troops. This was further compounded after the war when Kim claimed victory for himself and refused to give Mao any credit or even acknowledge his participation. Fearing that Kim had become a liability, Mao and Khrushchev, along with members of Kim's own government, attempted a coup against him in 1956. But as soon as Kim got word of it, he purged the North Korean government of anyone he deemed overly sympathetic to China or the Soviet Union. This failed coup might have gone better if Mao and Khrushchev's own relationship wasn't deteriorating. Mao, like Kim Il-sung, was alarmed by Khrushchev's de-Stalinization plan, while Khrushchev had begun to view Mao as a totalitarian fascist and not a true communist. This disagreement took precedence over their respective disputes with Kim Il-sung and probably saved his life. Mao and Khrushchev wouldn't bother with another coup in North Korea. But Kim still needed to convince North Korean citizens that he wasn't to blame for the war that devastated their country. So, for the first time, he embarked on a massive propaganda campaign using the destruction to his advantage. Kim commissioned thousands of murals and posters depicting American forces bombing and attacking North Korea. These not only served as a reminder of the violence they'd suffered at the hands of foreigners, but also reimagined the narrative of the war, a war that had literally just ended. According to Kim and his propaganda machine, it was the Americans who invaded North Korea and instigated the war, not the other way around. The posters also emphasized the cruelty and brutality of the American forces, particularly their targeting of civilians and children. Along with rewriting the origins of the war, he also claimed victory. Kim's revisionist history claims that the U.S. surrendered and begged for a ceasefire. For Kim, it didn't matter that his interpretation of events was easily disprovable. What mattered was repeating the lie until it stuck. This meant bombarding his citizens with reminders of the atrocities, from the brutal, violent posters to loudspeakers playing his speeches on a loop. North Koreans were indoctrinated with this propaganda, which it remains to this day. Kim also used propaganda to elevate and completely fabricate his own role in the conflict. Although he'd launched an initially successful invasion of South Korea, 
he proved completely inept at any sustained military campaign. He had to be rescued by Mao Zedong and hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops, and even that wasn't enough to save them. But in Kim's version, it was his tremendous leadership that heralded victory for North Korea. Despite their make-believe demand for a ceasefire, Kim also portrayed the U.S. as a constant threat to North Korea, one that could invade at any time to avenge their imaginary defeat at the hands of Kim Il-sung. This perpetual gaslighting was meant to keep North Koreans living in perpetual fear. Fear of another attack, fear of additional bombings, fear of even more destruction. Kim Il-sung created these external crises to distract his people from his own shortcomings as a leader and to cement his own power by emphasizing that he and only he could protect the country and its people. And the more a dictator repeats a lie, the more it becomes true. During this time, Kim also engaged in a massive and largely successful effort to reconstruct North Korea and completely nationalize its industry. With the exception of the capital city of Pyongyang, it was a sparsely populated, mostly rural country. Agriculture and arms production for the always impending war with the United States became the two pillars of the North Korean economy. Kim's goal was for Korea to become completely self-reliant. And self-reliance, known as Juche, became the official North Korean ideology. While the concept of self-reliance may seem practical and even reasonable, the other facet of Juche involved pledging complete and total allegiance to Kim Il-sung, accepting him as the one and only true leader and obeying his every command. If nothing else, Kim's quest to repair his tarnished image was remarkably efficient. After rebuilding North Korea from a heap of rubble, reinforcing its economy, purging his enemies and detractors, and shifting the blame for a war that killed 20% of his citizens, Kim embarked on a personal barnstorming tour to regain his citizens' trust. The nationwide tour saw Kim visiting farms, schools, and hospitals, basically any place he could take credit for rebuilding. It was a maneuver that had earned him almost unlimited goodwill the first time he'd done it as a newly installed puppet leader by the Soviets. This time, it would be even grander and more effective. Whatever skill or competence Kim lacked as a general, he more than made up for in charm. And as he made his way across North Korea, he was able to leverage his charisma into ironclad support. Everywhere he went, Kim was greeted like a hometown hero. His ease with crowds endeared him to North Koreans of all ages. These interactions with ordinary people were heavily documented and served the dual purpose of generating propaganda while satisfying Kim's desperate need for approval and respect. Kim could imprison, torture, or kill anyone he wanted. He hardly needed hugs from schoolchildren. But like the vast majority of autocrats, he was an egomaniac who was completely and utterly insecure. He was never satisfied with the amount of support he was receiving and always wanted more. 
After his barnstorming hugathon, Kim once again enjoyed the same support he had before blundering into the Korean War. But instead of resting on his laurels, he set about burnishing his cult of personality, amplifying the myth of his accomplishments and almost divine right to rule. After witnessing Stalin's tactics in the Soviet Union, Kim knew how practical and effective a cult of personality could be for a leader. But as he grew more powerful, Kim also became increasingly concerned for his own safety. Inevitably, even the best propaganda doesn't work on everyone. His response was to exert even more control over the lives of his citizens. His first move was to completely isolate North Korea from outside information of any kind. He banned all non-government sanctioned media and prevented anyone from leaving or entering the country. This also meant that no information flowed out of North Korea. As such, it became nearly impossible to pinpoint what dates anything occurred or what daily life was like under the regime. The only way to gain that information was from North Korean defectors, and they were rare. In the late 1950s, Elvis Presley and Little Richard were dominating the airwaves of American radio. But in North Korea, there was not a whole lot of shaking going on, unless it involved the secret police shaking confessions out of political prisoners. With Kim's new restrictions, North Koreans only had one radio station, and it didn't play rock and roll. Instead, it played a steady stream of Kim's speeches or revisionist history lessons portraying Kim as the savior of North Korea. Not only that, Kim had begun embellishing or outright lying about his life story up to that point, well beyond his earlier lies regarding his role as a Japanese resistance fighter. All of this propaganda was broadcast over the radio and expected to be absorbed by his citizens. As if the content wasn't soul-crushing enough, Kim actually forced North Koreans to keep their radios on 24 hours a day. In a rare instance of freedom, citizens were permitted to turn down the volume if they wished. In addition to being inundated with a constant stream of propaganda, Kim also mandated a new program called Self-Criticism Sessions. During these sessions, which are still commonplace, North Koreans are forced to criticize themselves and one another for their failures. It's a technique commonly used by cults in which people admit their insecurities and shame each other until they are all equally broken down and can only be built up by devotion to their new ideology. And in North Korea, those who refuse to participate are jailed or sent to labor camps. Ostensibly, these criticism sessions are meant to bolster pride and patriotism, but their true purpose is to make people comfortable spying on each other. A perfect system to root out individuals that might be a threat to Kim's power. With all of Kim's draconian measures, it's difficult to understand why North Koreans didn't speak up or revolt. Some might have. If they did, they were most likely arrested or killed. But for most North Koreans, Kim's rule wasn't that much worse than what they'd experienced for the past 200 years. 
For a long time, the peninsula had been under the authority of the Chinese, who installed a monolithic and oppressive regime that kept the country isolated from its neighbors. These policies led to widespread poverty, famine, and anger amongst the peasant classes. Then, after the Sino-Japanese War of 1894, Japan took over Korea, enacting even harsher measures to oppress the citizens. Kim Il-sung was hardly an improvement over previous regimes, but he wasn't much worse either. Also, without any access to outside media, North Koreans really had no basis for comparison. The younger generations had no idea that things weren't like this everywhere. By the mid-1960s, Kim's will had been imposed on nearly every facet of North Korean life. But he still wasn't satisfied. So he implemented a new method of controlling his people by spying on each and every one of them. When we return, we'll explore Kim's most diabolical creation, the Songbun system. Now, back to the story. From the moment the Korean War ended, Kim Il-sung undertook drastic measures to retain his iron grip over the North Korean people. He reshaped a defeat into a victory. He rewrote the history of North Korea with himself at the center and fostered a cult of personality unlike any in modern history. But like most dictators before and since, no matter how much power he had, Kim was never satisfied. He always believed there were people out to get him, whether rebellious citizens or members of his own government. And despite implementing almost every possible measure to control life inside North Korea, in the mid-1960s, Kim decided to take it one insane step further with the Songbun system. The Songbun system was like India's caste system on steroids. It was a publicly known ranking system that divided citizens into three distinct groups. Core, wavering, or hostile. The designations were based on perceived loyalty to the state, but mostly based on familial relationships. If one citizen had been found guilty of a crime or even a perceived offense, his or her entire family were then designated as criminals. The system dictated nearly every aspect of a person's life, where they lived, where they were educated, how much food they received, where they could work, and most importantly, whether they were rounded up and murdered in a gulag. Only people in the core group could live in Pyongyang and occupy positions within the government. The wavering group consists of average, everyday North Koreans, while the hostile group is made up of anyone deemed unpatriotic or threatening. The hostile group is relegated to the most remote parts of the country. And if someone is designated as hostile, his or her entire extended family is also assigned that designation. The North Korean secret police are in charge of updating and assigning Songbun designations. They maintain files on literally every single North Korean citizen, which began at age 17, and are updated every two years. While it's nearly impossible to elevate one Songbun, it can easily be demoted for perceived hostility or lack of nationalism. And as with all crimes, 
the worst offenders are sent to labor camps. This was another tactic that Kim borrowed from Joseph Stalin, who sent nearly two million of his citizens to die in the Soviet gulags. These were ostensibly re-education camps meant to punish troublemakers through hard labor and reinvigorate their sense of patriotism. But Kim's camps bore a much closer resemblance to Nazi concentration camps. The principal focus was torture. In Kim's era, as well as today, conditions within the camps are so abysmal that those who don't die of starvation, hypothermia, or illness are often killed by guards as examples to other prisoners. Some of the camps hold up to 50,000 prisoners, all of whom are forced into manual labor. Women are often subject to sexual abuse. Others are used as test subjects for medical experiments. Details of the camps have been provided by survivors who later defected from North Korea. One survivor recalled being forced to watch a hanging during which the victim's face was pelted with rocks until they bled to death. The guards left the body in the gallows, and that night it was picked clean by crows. Just as Kim had more or less grown up idolizing Joseph Stalin, a new group of dictators had grown up idolizing Kim Il-sung for his brutal tactics. During the late 1960s and early 70s, Kim forged relationships with new dictators around the world, from Eric Honecker in East Germany, to Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania, to Mobutu Seseseko in Zaire. But none of them could ever wield the same level of control as Kim Il-sung without being overthrown or ousted in a coup. And while his methods were horrifyingly oppressive and completely immoral, the vast majority of North Koreans enjoyed a relatively high standard of living, higher, in fact, than their counterparts in South Korea. For many, Kim's fascist oppression was preferable to the alternative, especially when compared to what they'd endured under Japanese rule. As the 70s wound to a close, Kim began to confront his own mortality. He was in his late 60s now. He couldn't live forever. But Kim didn't want to vanish into obscurity. Far from it. He wanted to remain on the forefront of his people's minds. For years, he had used the country's official ideology, Juche, to indoctrinate the populace with propaganda. Though the supposed goal of Juche was to preserve the people's independence and self-reliance, it was merely an excuse to give Kim control over every aspect of daily life. And after attaining complete control over his people, he decided to build a monument to honor the very system that kept them in eternal submission. Standing 560 feet high, comprising 25,550 granite blocks, one for every day of Kim Il-sung's life at the time of its completion, the Juche Tower is a brutalist reimagining of the Washington Monument. In fact, the Juche Tower is exactly five feet higher than the Washington Monument. And instead of a calm reflecting pool, at the base of the Juche Tower sits three 100-foot-tall statues. One statue holds a hammer, another a sickle, and the third a writing brush, which is supposed to depict the working intellectual. 
While the Juche Tower is meant to honor a communist ethos, it actually represents the hubris, hypocrisy, and unassailable power of Kim Il-sung. Like every monument in North Korea, it was created at great expense and required thousands of man-hours to complete. For a country as poor as North Korea, the resources spent on these monuments could have been better spent on literally anything. But to Kim Il-sung, the Juche Tower was not a waste of resources, just the opposite. He didn't care about being practical. He cared about control. This was Kim's way of saying, not only have I created an ideology that deprives you of basic human rights, starves you, and forces you to revere me as a god, I made you build a statue to honor it. Kim Il-sung had secured his legacy through violence, torture, brainwashing, and a gigantic, hideous monument. Next, he would do so with his own flesh and blood, his son, Kim Jong-il. The Kims would create something that no one had done before, the world's first communist dynasty. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the reign of Kim Jong-il and how he stepped out of his father's shadow to turn North Korea into one of the most dangerous countries on Earth. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>